David said in Psalm 27.1, when he was being attacked by none other than his mentor, the one he looked to, his hero, King Saul. King Saul had turned on him because King Saul had some issues, some serious issues. That's not what this message is about. But when David uh, wrote this psalm, and it's probably one of your favorites, it's one of mine, it's Psalm 27, and it begins with this. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom should I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom should I dread? Other words that are used in that first famous verse that classical pieces have been written about, uh, musical pieces, the Lord is my strength, he's my stronghold, he's my protector, he's my fortress. But I like that word defense. The best offense is a defense. We won't get into the ball games that are happening today at all, but the, just to say the best offense is so often a defense. And it turns out that that's true in the most critical area of our lives as believers that are, that are on our way to heaven. In the New Testament, the Apostle Peter speaks of this in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 14, 16a. On the first part of 16, I'm going to be sharing with you today. And the title of this message is, Let God Defend. Let God defend, or really the full, fuller title is just one more word. Let God defend you when you're being attacked. If you're even in it, allowing yourself to be in a context to be attacked. Now, I learned this early in my life. Some of you have heard my testimony. I'll just give you that little brief ditty here. For those of you that are new and I haven't met you yet, I was saved. I was born again at the age of six. Thanksgiving 1969, that gives away my age. And then, at the age of nine, baptized, and then through my early years, learning what it meant to follow Christ, understand his lordship, submit to that to the best of my ability. And then right around the age of 16, I started to clearly sense that God was calling me to the ministry. And it was right during that time that I was in a secular marketplace called public school in Staten Island, New York. And so as I began, to, I began to realize that in the context of a public school, inevitably, Christianity was not going to be embraced. That is historic Christianity, biblical Christianity. And so I share with this, you this little story that led to my being given the title, believe it or not, the defender of the faith. I became the defender. I was known as the defender of the faith. How did that happen? One day in my advanced placement uh, his, history class, and I always say that because this particular teacher was like a college professor. He was, he was known to be one of the best history teachers in the public school system, the high school system at that time. And not only was he a man of great intellect, but he was a dramatist. He was like an actor. And I'll never forget the day that we were talking about American history, and we were, he was talking about American history, and he went to that whole area of the revivalism of American history, the 1700s. Names like George Whitfield, many of you know that name. Another name that you might know, Jonathan Edwards. And this man got up, I'll just call him Mr. Smith, that wasn't his name. But Mr. Smith got up, and, and with great power and great drama, with a British accent, represented Jonathan Edwards like some kind of bombastic crazy man. 
And what sermon do you think he quoted? If you know anything about Jonathan Edwards, his, his message that's most popular is what? Sinners in the hands of an angry God, right? Remember that title? Some of you are familiar with that. And in that message, Jonathan Edwards, and we have it in a manuscript of his message, he said, you are like a spider that God is holding over the pit of hell and he's ready to drop you unless you repent. That's a paraphrase. And he did it with great drama and craziness and he was mocking Jonathan Edwards. He was mocking the actual truth. I was a little bit overwhelmed. I felt a little bit, I said, what am I going to do with this? I have to find, nobody was speaking up. Nobody was defending, saying anything. And I went home and I asked my dad, dad, I need some help here. And he pointed me to a couple of books. He said, do your own research. You'll find out that Jonathan Edwards was not like that at all. I did my research. I went back the next day. And when the teacher got up and began to mock again on the second day, historic Christianity and revivalism, I said, uh, Mr. Smith, can I interject something? He goes, oh, Mr. Mercaldo wants to interject something. And I said, sir, I, I think I'd like to just correct something that happened yesterday. You made it sound like Jonathan Edwards was like a crazy man. It turned out that when he preached that message, he did it with spectacles. He could barely see. He read it. He was monotone, and he was speaking to a bunch of dried up, ineffective ministers. Mr. Smith turned around to the class and said, well, Mr. Mercaldo, we will now refer to you as the conscience of the class. You are now the defender of the faith. And so he kind of turned it around on me. But from that point on, Mr. Smith knew that he had a guy, a kid, in the class that was not going to let him get away with expressing non-truths about difficult issues, shall we say. You might wonder how the next thing happened, and the next thing that happened really in my life is that shortly after that, I began to have many doubts. I didn't really understand why I believed what I believed. Why do you believe the Bible is the Word of God? I know you believe the Bible is the Word of God, probably all of us that are here today, but why? How do you know for sure? Well, those questions began to linger in me. They're based, the basic questions of life. How do I really know that God exists? How do I really know that the Bible is true? How do I even know that I exist? How do I even know that there's anything such as truth? Is truth absolute or relative? Now don't worry, I'm not going to get too deep that we drown here in some kind of crazy philosophy, but it is an important these are important questions, and many who are in their 20s are asking those questions, and they're, be they're being given the wrong answers in the context of institutions called colleges, universities, grad schools, and even in high school. So my struggle, which I will not go into here, I shared a little bit with the class this past week in a personal testimony. This ties into why we're doing this Bible study called Culture Shock. By the way, I am not teaching it, I'm just facilitating it. The teacher is Chip Ingram, who is well qualified for this, and I invite you to come today just to check it out. You may, not, you may be into it, you may not, but come and check it out today at 10.15. We'll be done at 11, I promise you. And I want, I want to tell you that my passion for apologetics is not rooted in some kind of ethereal intellectualism, but it's a matter of life and death for me. And I would suggest to you your understanding about why you believe what you believe is a matter of life and death for you and for the people in your sphere of influence. 
People are not just simply accepting the idea that the scripture is God's word. I think you already know that. In fact, it's marginalized. People say, that's, that's, that ship has already sailed. We don't believe in the Bible. It's whatever you feel spiritually that will get you through. And if you do some good things, then if God exists, he'll say, oh, that's pretty good. You, you did the best you could. I'm going to let you into heaven. That's what most people think today, if they even believe that there's eternal life. And so my struggle led to a situation where I became a functional agnostic, and then God allowed me to go to a Bible school after a couple of years in a Christian liberal arts institution. I went to a Bible school out in the Midwest, and at that Bible school, I was a hermit for two months until, on the way, follow with me, to an assigned ministry, God used an atheist to get me back to the Christian worldview. Isn't God funny sometimes? Doesn't he have a sense of humor? Don't you agree with me? He loves us so much that he will use the craziest circumstances and the most unlikely people to get our attention. That's how much he loves us. And that's how much God loved me. That in that moment of struggle where I was getting ready to throw Christianity as a worldview out the window, he showed me through an atheist who I, was hel- who I helped to move from atheism to agnosticism to theism to considering the claims of Christ. And finally at the end of the conversation, as I was coming back to the Christian worldview, she realized that she had to seriously consider who Jesus was and who he said he was. I never got to witness to or present the gospel, but at that moment, that young woman whose name was Melissa realized that she had to take another look at the Bible that she had so clearly mocked just 30 minutes before that. Have you ever had that kind of conversation? Perhaps you have, perhaps you haven't. But I want you to understand that However you process this message today and what the scripture says, God is calling you today to be an equipped ambassador for him. You are an ambassador for the Lord God. What an amazing privilege that is. And he appointed you to be an ambassador. You are, whether you like it or not, an ambassador. He wants you to be his defender. He wants you to be his contender. Yes, a contentious person for the truth in the best sense of the term. It is not love that sets you free. It's the truth that sets you free. People think that love is the only thing. Love is all. Love wins. All these phrases. And you could argue to some degree that's true. But Jesus said, not my love will set you free. He said, my truth will set you free. And, your tr- and the truth of God sets you free to love in the way that God has defined. So we'll get to a little bit more of that in a few moments. But let me get now into the scripture. The first thing I want you to see in the first couple of verses that we look at here in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 14 and 15a, is that, and the title of the message is Let God Defend, right? Let God Defend You. So God is calling us to be grateful and, and submit to him as the God of justice, the one who will bring all things to justice. No matter what we see going on in our society, in our culture, it seems to be unjust, it's not fair. God doesn't, God, God hasn't walked away. He hasn't said, oh, I don't know what to do. Imagine I got up there, I don't know what to do. These people are so smart. No. All things will be brought to accountability and justice. And so Peter says this, even if you should suffer for what is right, 
you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened, but in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Another translation says it this way, but even if you should suffer for righteousness, you are blessed. Do not fear them or be intimidated. But in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy. Isn't it interesting how, people, how Peter juxtaposes blessedness with suffering? In other words, you should be happy or you should at least be excited about the fact that you have an opportunity to suffer for the Lord. That's crazy speech. That's cra it's a crazy concept unless you're a believer and understand the nature of suffering. And what is suffering? We could define it. There are plenty of words to describe it. There are plenty of words in the Greek. But I think we all intuitively know what Peter is saying. If you are intimidated or there's an attempt to intimidate you or you're attacked because of your faith, thank God that means you're doing something right. The key here is don't fear the person that you're speaking with. Fear God. If you fear God, you will be able to love that person. If you fear the person, the scripture says the fear of man, the fear of woman is a snare. It will literally stop you from being the loving ambassador that God has called you to be. See, there's no intimidation that can take place in your life when God is in charge of your life. And the lordship of Christ is talked about here by Peter very clearly. Revere Christ as Lord. Regard him as Lord, as holy. Lordship is not an option. I love this phrase from one of my favorite preachers, Dr. Stephen Olford. Some of you might know of that name, the British preacher. He's now with the Lord. He was a pastor at Calvary Baptist in Manhattan for many, many years. And he used to say this all the time. Christ is Lord of all or not at all. He is Lord of all or he is not at all. You're either pregnant or you're not pregnant. He's either the Lord or he's not. You're either filled with the Spirit of God, yielded to the Spirit of God, or you're not. There's no little sections of compartmentalization with, oh, my Lord, I'm going to make you Lord of this, but not of this. Well, then he's not Lord. Why is this so important? Because Peter says it through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The lordship of Christ is tied into how we have confidence in the context of what he says next. And we'll get to that in just a moment. Have you ever been in a legal context where, you're in, where there's an attempt to intimidate and bully you by the opposing lawyer? Has anybody ever experienced, don't raise your hand, some of you might go, oh, yeah. oh no, I heard about it though, I watched a movie, it was really bad. I had that experience a couple of years ago. And in a moment where this lawyer was bullying me and intimidating me with false accusations, I knew they were false, my conscience was clear, my lawyer said this to me. Listen to what he said. This is a quote. He said, calm down, Tim. Chill, baby. He actually said that, believe it or not. He said, I want you to chill out. Don't let that lawyer get under your skin. He has no case against you. And then he said this. Let me defend you. You be quiet. Don't write. Don't pontificate. Don't go on social media. Blah, 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 blah. Let me defend you. And he did. And it took 18 months, and then he finally prevailed. Because, believe it or not, some of you know me, knows that this is not an easy thing for me to do. I shut up. 
<laughs> I got an amen on that one. I, I love that. Do you know that, the, that Peter describes the adversary as a lion without teeth? You're familiar with this passage, are you not? 1 Peter 5, 6 to 11. This is the last thing that Peter teaches in his first epistle, and he says this. Now listen, again, my words don't really mean anything unless they're connected to the truth, but when the word of God is spoken, we should go, okay, I'm listening. Here's the word of God. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you at the proper time. Casting all your cares upon him because he cares for you. There's the, one of the keys to getting rid of any anxiety that you have in your life. Just cast your cares on him. He cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be alert. And here it is. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for anyone he can devour. What's the instruction and response? Resist him. Firm in the faith. In other words, resist him. Stand firm. Don't run away. Knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your fellow believers throughout the world. The God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, establish, strengthen, and support you after you've suffered for a little while. Isn't that interesting? To him be dominion forever in that great crescendo, Peter says at the end of 1 Peter. Amen. So what's the key in that passage? Did you know that when a lion roars, it's an indication that he's out of gas? He doesn't have teeth anymore. He's toothless. He's a toothless lion. Satan is a toothless lion. Why does a lion roar? A lion wouldn't roar against its prey to let the, the prey know that he's coming after. Why, why he roars is, just that, is that the prey would become fearful, turn around and run the other way right into the mouths of the, tooth, the teeth-filled lions. You got it? Satan is a toothless lion, and he's roaring, but God calls us to stand firm. And when someone in your life begins to question the fundamentals of what Christianity are all about, whatever it may be, the Bible, eternal life, issues like we're going to be talking about over the next 12 weeks in our Bible study, and other things that Pastor John will be bringing to us as time goes on in the messages, know that the adversary is toothless. He's toothless. Let God do what he's called you to do. Equip you to do what he's called you to do. Love him and do what he says. Let God defend you. Be grateful. Be happy that you're allowed to suffer his, for his sake and submit to his lordship. But the second thing I want you to see is this. And it's in 15b. The second part of verse 15, 1 Peter chapter 3. Let God defend you be prepared and be ready for questions that are going to come your way. Here's what the scripture says. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Another version says this. Be ready at any time, any time, even at Sprouts, even at Whole Foods, or wherever you happen to shop, Publix, or wherever you happen to shop, be ready at any time to give a defense, a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. The key word in that phrase is defense. And that word in the original language is apologia. Does that sound familiar to you? Apologetics. 
It is a word that was used in the courtroom when a defense lawyer would get up and defend the client, defend the truth. Be ready for a defense. Now some of you are saying, uh-oh, come on, Tim. Like, don't, I, I'm not Lee Strobel, you know? I'm not Josh McDowell. I'm not Francis Schaefer, and I could go on and on with the list. I'm not Chip Ingram. No, you're not. You're you. But God has uniquely prepared you and wants to uniquely prepare you for your relationships, your sphere of influence that Chip Ingram will likely never have any impact on. Neither will Josh McDowell or any other person that you can possibly mention. You are the one that God is calling to connect with people who desperately need Jesus. Eternity, or where they end up in eternity, is at stake. It's life and death stuff. Now, perhaps you've heard the statement, the church is the hope of the world. Anybody ever heard that one before? The church is the hope of the world. And everybody goes, yeah, amen, wow, that's cool, yeah, I agree. <laughs> Let's bring it down to the nitty gritty. That's true, but more fundamentally, you, you and I, we are the hope of this world. God has called us to, again, be his ambassadors, his representatives. How do we think that the gospel will get to people around us in this community, not someplace else, not in Estero, not in New York, not in Chicago, Michigan, some of the other states that you came from that you love so dearly, but right here, but right here. How's he going to get the message? It happens through us. What a privilege, but we have to be prepared. Not perfectly prepared. Some of us will have more knowledge as time goes on to address philosophical questions. Maybe that's not your role. But please understand that when you present the gospel to someone, it is not based on your personal subjective testimony. I'm sorry to burst your bubble if you thought that your personal testimony was enough to get somebody over the finish line. That is just not true. Because your personal testimony of faith in Christ and you were saved, just think back, most of us here, if not all of us here, perhaps, have had that, you can think back to the moment when that happened. When that happened, it wasn't because you had some feelings and you felt good about God. It's because you understood the objective truth of the gospel and you submitted to the God who gave you that truth to give you assurance that you're going to heaven, you have a relationship with him. Most people are not even close to entering into that kind of understanding. They have so many questions on the way to getting to that point. Most of us as Christians in today's society, when we talk to those that are not believers, are like ships passing in the night. And then when we get around to actually possibly talking about it, we give our personal testimony, and they go, oh, that's nice. That's good for you. I'm so happy for you. I really am. I think that's really great. It's not for me. I don't need it. You need a crutch? They don't say that because they love you. You need a crutch? You see what I'm saying? It's not subjective. It's objective. And that's what God is calling us to. He's calling us to be prepared. There's your alert right now from the Lord. <laughs> alert! Alert! The story is told of Alexander the Great. I call this illustration Alexander the Great and Alexander the Less. Alexander means defender of men, and I know that because one of my grandsons is named Gray Alexander. I had to look it up. 
when we dedicated him. It means defender of men. And Alexander, of course, was the 4th century BC king in Macedonia and Greece, one of history's most powerful military commanders. Even if you don't know the detail of his life, you know enough about him to know that there was a reason why he was called Alexander the Great. And it wasn't because he was a nice guy. Now, a story is told about Alexander the Great one day this Greek conqueror was holding court and a young man was brought into court. And that young man was accused of cowardice. It was proven that he had deserted the army and now he was standing before Alexander the Great. And in that moment, Alexander, he knew, this, this young man knew that Alexander had the power in that moment to have him beheaded right in front of him. And so Alexander, sitting on his throne, looking down at this young man in court, said, young man... What is your name? And the young man said with some hesitancy, Well, sir, my name is Alexander. Alexander stood up and said, Young man, what is your name? And the young man, now quivering, says, Sir, my name is Alexander. Alexander came down off his throne, down to the floor, right in front of this man, towering over this young man. And he said, and he shouted, Young man, what is your name? And he said, Sir, my name is Alexander. And Alexander the Great shouted to him face to face, Change your conduct or change your name. Change your conduct or change your name. I guess some of you are waiting for me to make application now to us. Hmm. I don't think I have to. I think all of us understand that this is serious. We're not on a cruise ship, we're on a battleship. I love cruises. Anybody like cruises? Nobody wants to go on cruises anymore. The cruise lines are desperate to get you on a cruise, right? But the true metaphor for the body of Christ is not a cruise ship, although there's some nice things that we can experience on a battleship, right? There's usually good food and camaraderie and loyalty. A lot of things right, right? It's more of a battleship. God is calling us to conduct ourselves in a way that is honoring to him, to not shrink back in fear when we're around people, but actually approach our friends, our acquaintances, those in our sphere of influence with love. And what does love drive you to do? Love drives you to give them the most important message you could possibly ever give them. Not forcing it, not artificially, not alienating them by taking a Bible and pounding them over the head, but in the context of meaningful, healthy relationships, sharing the life-giving gospel that you have received, that I have received. And there's one more thing that Peter makes very clear. And it's found in 1 Peter 3, 15 and 16, right in that range. And here's what I want you to see. Let God defend you in those moments that you have an opportunity to share. Here's what I would say about it. Be infused and refuse to compromise. Be infused. What do I mean by be infused? Be infused by the Holy Spirit. Be controlled by the Holy Spirit. And you'll see why in a moment. And refuse to compromise in your personal life. That's exactly what Peter says in this verse. He says, but do this. Do what? Defend. Be ready with an answer for those around you who are on their way to eternal hell without Christ. 
But do this with, what does it say? Is it there? The verse. There it is. Do this. Well, it's the verse before that, but that's okay. I'm going to read it to you. Do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience. Do this with gentleness and reverence, keeping a clear conscience. Isn't it interesting that Peter picks out the word gentleness? Isn't that one of the fruits of the Spirit? It is. The fruits of the Spirit, or one would say the fruit of the Spirit, because it's one happy combination, isn't it? Love, joy, peace, kindness, goodness, patience, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The relational elements of the fruit of the Spirit are all to be combined when we are giving answers for the hope that is within us. Peter gives the whole picture for how we are to be prepared. Paul said to Timothy at one point, the goal of my instruction to you is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from a sincere faith. If you take those three, ver- those three concepts from 1 Timothy 1.5, 1 Timothy 1.5 if you're taking notes, those three things, love, agape love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and from a sincere faith, people can smell a phony from miles away, especially when it comes to spirituality. And look, I'm a New Yorker. Some of you are from the Northeast. It doesn't matter where you're from. Anywhere you are, if you're being phony and you're not being sincere, people pick up on that right away and they'll be nice to you. Well, bless your heart. Bless your heart, brother. Or bless your heart, sister. Or whatever they would say. And they'll just reject it. People are looking for authenticity and Paul indicates that. And that's tied into everything that I've said today. My brothers and sisters... God has called us to defend his truth. To do it in love. And to leave the rest to him. You see, your God and my God is good. And just. He's our creator. He's our redeemer. And when we show gentleness and respect to another person it's based upon the fact that the only difference between you and any other person who's ever committed the most heinous crime is the grace of God because that person's made in the image of God as much as you are the basis for respect and gentleness toward people who are even coming against you with attempted intimidation about things that are spiritual and true is to love them and to cut through that and see through that veneer And love them into the kingdom, but love them into the kingdom by speaking the truth in love. I'm asking you today to commit yourself to give away the truth that God has so graciously given to you. Even when people don't want to hear it, that they may be, even if they're not prepared to hear it, if you have a relationship with them, they'll take the time to at least in a courteous way listen to you. That's not your call, meaning the, the thing that's not your call is their response. That's up to them and God. We're called to present the truth in love, to love that person and to be faithful to share what's been given to us. And I close with this illustration. When Billy Graham... One of his favorite illustrations about how he would share the gospel with people, he would say, look, I'm just a beggar that found some bread. Oh, and here's where the bread is. I'm pointing you to that bread. 
I'm not the one that saves you. My words don't save you. My ability to possibly persuade you doesn't save you. The bread of life is the one who saves you. I'm just, I, I'm just a beggar. I found the bread. I'm, I'm, I've eaten that bread. I'm, I've come into a relationship with the bread of life. You can find that too. Here's how you find it. So the question for all of us today is, are you equipped? Do you know how to share the gospel from A to Z and bring someone to a place where they can actually make that connection personally with the God of the universe and receive salvation? And on the way to doing that, are you prepared possibly for questions? Let me give you one more quick hint as I, as I make my final uh, uh, statement and, my, and we pray together. Please understand this. This is so important. If someone is asking you a question that you can't answer, it's okay to say, I don't know. But I promise you, I'll do the research because I'm confident that there is an answer. Let me do some research. You see, we don't have to have all the answers, but we have to be prepared as we possibly can be. Now I'm going to ask you to stand. We're going to pray. Father, we come before you today having once again engaged in hearing your word. And Father, my words fail, but your words never fail. I pray that each one of us will be challenged to take just another step in the direction of responding to the challenge that Peter brings to us through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. To be prepared with a defense, with an answer, for the questions that come, for the hope that is within us. Right now, Lord, I know that many of us are thinking very carefully, and you are bringing, Lord, to mind people in our lives that we need to tell the truth to, the gospel to. And I pray, Lord, that you will help us this week to make a commitment to open up maybe the beginning of a conversation, but help us, Lord, to know that you will defend us in the worst of circumstances. You are our defense. And you are the one that equips us. Help us, Lord. Help us, Lord, to be your ambassadors. In Jesus' name, amen.